And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is August the 8th, 220th day of the year. 145 days remain till the end of the year. 685 B.C., <clears throat> spring and autumn period, the Battle of Qianxi. The death of the previous Duke of Qi, Gongsun Wuzi, Duke Zhuang of Lu sends an army into the Duchy of Qi to install the exiled Qi Prince uh, Ganzi Jiu as the new Duke, but is defeated by the at uh, Quanxi by Zhu's brother and rival claimant, the newly inaugurated Duke Huan of Qi. Eight seventy Treaty of Mersin. King Louis the German and his half-brother Charles the Ball partitioned the Middle Frankish Kingdom into two larger East and West divisions. 1220, Sweden is defeated by Estonian tribes in the Battle of Lihua. 1264, Medahar Revolt. Muslim rebel forces took the Alcazar of Jerez de la Frontera after defeating the Castilian garrison. 1503, King James IV of Scotland marries Margaret Tudor, daughter of King Henry VII of England at Hollywood Abbey in Edinburgh, Scotland. 1509, Krishna Deva Raya is crowned Emperor of Vijayanagara at uh, Jotor. 1576, the cornerstone for Tycho Bray's Yerneborg Observatory is laid on the island of Haven. 1585, John Davis enters Cumberland Sound in search of the Northwest Passage. 1588, Anglo-Spanish War, Battle of Gravelines. Naval engagement ends, ending the Spanish Armada's attempt to invade England. Had the British lost uh, the Battle of Gravelines, uh, we'd probably all be speaking Spanish. 1647, Irish Confederate Wars and Wars of the Three Kingdoms. We're talking about the Battle of Dungan's Hill. English parliamentary forces defeat the Irish forces. 1648, Mehmed IV succeeds Ibrahim I as Ottoman Sultan. 1709, Bartolome de Guzmao demonstrates the lifting power of hot air on, in an audience before the King of Portugal in Lisbon, Portugal. Now, if they really wanted to see a demonstration of the power of hot air, Look at Congress. 1786, Mount Blanc on the French-Italian borders, climbed for the first time by Jacques Beaumont and Dr. Michel Gabriel Picard. 1794, Joseph Whitby leads an expedition in search for the Northwest Passage near Juneau, Alaska. 1831, 400 Shawnee people agree to relinquish their lands in Ohio in exchange for land west of the Mississippi in the Treaty of Wapakoneta. 1844, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, headed by Brigham Young, is reaffirmed as the leading body of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, these religious orders, not just the Mormons, but the Catholics and Protestants and everybody else, come up with such high-sounding names for their uh, leadership. It's just absolutely amazing. 1863... I'm being overrun by ants here. 
1863, American Civil War. Following his defeat in the Battle of Gettysburg, General Lee sends a letter of resignation to Confederate President Jefferson Davis, which Davis refused to accept. You know, had several things played against Lee in that particular battle. Number one, it wasn't a battle anybody planned. Uh, Confederate forces had gone to Gettysburg because they heard there were shoes available. And it was basically um, more and more troops were called in. To, you know, as one side brought in more people, the other side brought in more, and it just continued to skyrocket. And he didn't have his cavalry. Uh, the cavalry commander and his forces were off doing a raid. So Lee was basically blind as he moved into Pennsylvania. Uh, 1863, Tennessee military governor Andrew Johnson frees his personal slaves in Greenville, Tennessee, despite them being uh, exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. That's now called uh, Emancipation Day in the state of uh, Tennessee. 1870, Republic of Ploieste failed the radical liberal rising against uh, Dominator Carroll of Romania. 1876, Thomas Edison gets a patent for his mimeograph. You know, it's interesting, going back just for a moment to the failed radical liberal uprising. The liberals are always thought their way is so much better than what anybody else does. And yet their way always devolves into either socialism or communism under various names. At the end of the day, all it is is they know better than you what you ought to be doing. We're seeing that today. 1903, Black Sunday occurs, killing 12 in a stadium collapse in Philadelphia. 1908, Wilbur Wright makes his first flight at a race course in Le Mans, France. It's the Wright brothers' first public flight. 1918, World War I, Battle of Amiens began a string of almost continuous Allied victories with a push through the German front lines. It was called the Hundred Days Offensive. 1919, Anglo-Afghan Treaty of 1919 is signed, establishes peaceful relations between Afghanistan and the UK, and confirms the Durand Line as multiple at the mutual border. In return, the UK is no longer obligated to subsidize the, subsidize the Afghan government. Now, what's interesting to note is Afghan. One more time, Afghanistan's always been known as the place where empires go to die. Um, you know, thanks to our current leadership, we got a bloody nose when we left Afghanistan. Uh, the Soviet Union—that was just one defeat too many—and Soviet Union itself collapsed. Been a number of uh, major powers that have gone in there and uh, paid the price. 1929, German airship Graf Zeppelin begins around the world flight. 1940, the Ost Directive is signed by Wilhelm uh, Keitel. It was a, a German operational code name for the mobilization of forces before the start of Operation Barbarossa and the subsequent invasion of the Soviet Union. You know, there are many who believe had Hitler not invaded the Soviet Union, he would have won against Britain. But 
he began to believe his own propaganda. 1942, Quit India movements launched in India against the British rule in response to Mohandas Gandhi's call for Suraj or, or complete independence. You know, it's all well and good to say we should be free to choose our own destiny, but at the end of the day, can you hold it together? And Gandhi couldn't. Ninety forty five, the London Charter signed by France, the UK, the Soviet Union, and the US, establishing the laws and procedures for the Nuremberg trials. Nineteen forty six, first flight of the Convair B thirty six, the world's first mass produced nuclear weapon delivery vehicle, the heaviest mass produced piston engine aircraft, with the longest wingspan of any military aircraft and the first bomber within the continental range. Um you know, that kind of changed the rules of war with that first successful flight. 1963, the Great Train Robbery. In England, a gang of 15 train robbers stole 2.6 million pounds in banknotes. The uh been a lot of books and movies about it. It was a Royal Mail train heading from Glasgow to London on the West Coast Main Line in the early hours of August the 8th, 1963. After tampering with the landside signals to bring the train to a halt, a gang of 15, led by a man named Bruce Reynolds, attacked the train. Among the, the group were uh, Gordon Goody, Buster Edwards, Charlie Wilson, Roy James, John Daly, Jimmy White, Ronnie Biggs, Tommy Wisby, Jim Hussey, Bob Welch, and Roger Caudray as well as three men who are only known as one, two, and three, though later two were identified uh, as Harry Smith and Danny Pembroke. There was a 16th man, uh, an unnamed retired train driver. The, uh, the bulk of the stolen money was never recovered. They didn't use any firearms. Uh, Jack Mills, the train driver was beaten over the head with a metal bar, suffered serious head injuries. After his partial recovery, he returned to work doing light duties. He retired in 1967 and died in 1970 from unrelated illnesses, but he never overcame the trauma of the robbery. After the robbery, the gang hid at the Leather Slade Farm, and police found the hideout and a lot of incriminating evidence from a monopoly board with fingerprints, but led to the eventual arrest and conviction of most of the gang. The ringleaders got uh, 30 years in prison. But at the end of the day, what happened to the money? Also in 63, the Zimbabwe African, African National Union, the current ruling party of Zimbabwe, is formed by a split from the Zimbabwe African People's Union. 1967, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is founded by Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. 1969, at a zebra crossing in London, photographer Ian McMillan makes the iconic photo that becomes the cover image of the Beatles album Abbey Road. Now, for those that are wondering what a zebra crossing is, it's a marked crossing. Uh, or a pedestrian crossing marked with white stripes, referred to as zebra marks. Normally, pedestrians are afforded procedures over vehicular traffic 
although the significance of the markings vary by jurisdiction. But in most English um, areas, they're known as uh, zebra crossings. First one was installed in Sloth in the UK in 1951. Um, it was done to enhance pedestrian safety at new and already existing crossing points. Yeah. So, if you pictured zebras wandering through the city of um, London, no. 1973, Kim Dae-jung, a South Korean politician, later president of South Korea, is kidnapped on this date. 1974, President Richard Nixon, in a nationwide television address, announces his resignation for the office of President of the United States, effective noon on August 9th. 1988, the 88-88 uprising begins in Rangoon, Burma, led by students. Hundreds of thousands join in nationwide protest against the one-party regime. September 18th, the demonstrations end in a military crackdown. Thousands were killed. 1988 also saw the first night baseball game in the history of Chicago's Wrigley Field. Of course, the game was rained out in the fourth inning, but still they tried. 1989, Space Shuttle Program, STS-28. Space Shuttle Columbia takes off on a secret five-day military mission. 1990, Iraq occupies Kuwait and the states annexed to Iraq. That led to the Gulf War shortly after that. And they took that action based on the assurances of our ambassador that if they went into Kuwait, we wouldn't be all that upset. Uh, 1991, Warsaw radio mass in the tallest construction ever built collapses. 1993, a 7.8 Guam earthquake shakes the island with a maximum Michaeli intensity of 9, which is considered violent. Caused about 250 million in damage and injured up to 71 people. 1998, Iranian consulate in Mazar e Sharif, Afghanistan, is raided by the Taliban, leading to the death of 10 Iranian diplomats and a journalist. Well, in the year 2000, Confederate submarine H.L. Hunley, yes, the Confederacy had a submarine was raised to the surface after 136 years on the ocean floor and 30 years after its discovery by undersea explorer E. Lee Spence. 2001, Albanian rebels ambushed a convoy of the Army of the Republic of Macedonia near Tetovo, killed 10 soldiers. 2004, tour bus belonging to the Dave Matthews Band dumps about 800 pounds of human waste onto a boat full of passengers. 2007, Railway station in the Czech Republic derails, killed eight people and injured 64 others. 
2008, the 29th Modern Summer Olympic Games took place in uh, Beijing, China. Went on to August 24th. 2010, China floods a mudslide in Zhukou County, Gansu, China. Kills more than 1,400 people. 2013, a suicide bombing at a funeral in the Pakistani city of Keita kills at least 31. 2015, eight people are killed in a shooting in Harris County, Texas. 2016, terrorists attack a government hospital in Keita, Pakistan with a suicide blast and shooting. Killed between 70 and 94 people and injured about 130 others. Which raises the question again. What do you accomplish with a suicide attack? I can't see anything. 2022, the FBI executes a raid on former President Donald Trump's residence, Mar-a-Lago, Palm Beach, Florida, and we officially achieved Banana Republic status with that move. And now it's come to light that his civil rights may have been violated. And this was a political ploy to keep him from running against President Biden, which was probably dreamed up by former President Obama, who, according to many, are still pulling the strings even today. All right. We have been um, looking at um, a lot of historical mysteries. And it raises um, many, many questions as to are the history reports we get accurate. For example, we're going to be talking about uh, the real history of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, supposedly, the president put together a, uh, an expedition to explore between our border and the Pacific Ocean. And a lot of what has come to light which historians have suppressed, by the way, flies in the face of convention. And the tendency of historians, if something flies in the face of uh, convention, is suppress it. I mean, there are museums all over the country that have out-of-place artifacts that um, fill their basements because they don't fit in with uh, the theories that the geniuses in the fields have come up with. And if it contradicts accepted academic dogma, it's a hoax. And if it results in people starting to ask questions and think, oh, it's got to be suppressed. If it turns history upside down, make sure it never sees a lot of day. And it's been that way is throughout time. In the late 1800s, Smithsonian executive John Wesley Powell and his colleagues decided that for humanity's good. And it's always 
the right thing to do or for somebody's good. It systematically destroyed the vast amount of accumulated evidence proving that several Native American Indian tribes are more prob- most probably descended from ancient European visitors to the New World. We can't let something like that get out. wouldn't be good for the population. In the minds of whatever we usually refer to as duplicitous psychopaths, destruction is always sanctified by some dubious pretext. It's always for the the good of of society. Nevertheless, regardless of the blinkers on the truth, it's always a day of celebration when these plots are foiled or exposed. There have been revelations concerning the uh, Smithsonian Institution that have called into question even the need for them. Legally established in 1846, and its founder, James Smithson, never even set foot in the United States. Nobody really knows for sure what motivated him to found the institution. Now, if you look at the, the facade of the building, it gives an impression of nobility and academic prowess. Its cathedral-like architecture exudes an aura of established credibility. The average visitor isn't inclined to guess at the cafe's display and to a guide rhetoric or contrived to give them a false impression of America's past. Generally, they walk away feeling intrigued, informed, and certain that they have been told the truth about our history. In actuality, they've been expertly deceived. Since its advent, the Smithsonian Institution and its 11 satellite museums have been visited by millions of people from all over the world. According to its own PR, it's dedicated to the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. Which is high-sounding rhetoric to be sure, but is it true? Well, unfortunately, it's not. You know, too bad the Smithsonian's founders and board of regents decided to obliterate the evidence that uh, contradicted consensual notions about Americanization history. Reading of their Machiavellian intrigue compels us to ask what our world will be without such egregious censorship. Where would we be if humanity had open access to the information that's been sequestered and hidden away from sight? Now, there are a few of the questions that have perpetually arisen in the minds of many through the years. You know, growing up, I always enjoyed going to museums and learning about the, the past. I didn't know that most of what I was taught were lies. Well, 
been a lot of um, myths and legends that, to my mind, left us and told us what we should think. Because I would ask logical questions. But I couldn't get logical answers. You know, some of the most crucial tales of American history are contained in the pages of the journals of Mary Lovell Lewis, who's renowned as a pioneer, historian, scientist, and soldier. But behind the tales of frontier adventure are stories that are far more fascinating, at least to me. And these tales have haunted academics and historians for decades. Now I'm referring to stories of lost cultures, strange monoliths, anachronistic artifacts, and enigmatic races found in the shadows and cracks between America's official versions of history and the truth. In fact, even the death of Meriwether Lewis, his exploration of the American wilderness, and many of the discoveries uh, reported to have been made by his Corps of Discoveries, it was called, or actually steeped in mystery. Now, the contention that Meriwether Lewis was, in fact, murdered is not a new one. As soon as news of his death emerged, that they were short to follow by the rumors, historical accounts, letters, newspaper reports compiled by biographers suggest the people who knew Lewis were necessarily shocked, sad, and confused about the circumstances surrounding his death. Now, the government has gone out of its way to try to impress on everybody Meriwether Lewis committed suicide. Actually, he didn't, and everyone knew it. Now, he was respected by everybody who knew him as a fearless, quick-witted adventurer of powerful constitution and defagable will. When asked why he chose Lewis over a scientist or researcher to catalog the, the discoveries made in their push west, President Thomas Jefferson said it was impossible to find a character who to complete science and botany, natural history, mineralogy, and astronomy, joined the firmness and constitution and character, prudence, habits adapted in the, to the woods and familiarity with the Indian manners and characters required required for this undertaking. It's people he could choose that had those characteristics were few and far between. But one man he knew who did have all the qualifications was Captain Lewis. And those same qualities that made Lewis the president's first choice to lead the expedition west are the same qualities that cast doubt on the reports of his deterior mental deterioration and suicide. And they're also the same qualities and all that likely got him killed. With regard to Lewis's actual death, there are no eyewitnesses. But there is a list of strange circumstances that remain unaddressed and unanswered by official accounts of his alleged suicide. How did an expert marksman manage to shoot himself so ineffectively that he languished for hours? I mean, if you're shooting yourself in the head, it's damn hard to miss. Finally managed to cut himself with razors from 
had the tow to finish the job, at least according to the government reports. I mean, the at the end of the day, the answer has to be the once great wilderness explorer turned political powerhouse was murdered. Now, history is never that simple. The truth of history is notoriously difficult to pin down. Many historians who've become lost in the sort of wilderness of their own still believe in history as written and feel content to piece it together from the writings and research of other academics, not the people on the ground. They offer dry, lifeless regurgitations. Found little truths uttered from deep red high-back leather chairs sitting by a fire in New England. I refer to them as ivory tower scientists. They sit in the safety of their ivory tower. They don't have to sweat, get their hands dirty. And they tell everybody what they should think and what they should believe. And they're content with history as long as it's deemed academically sound and safe. Well, the murder of Meriwether Lewis marked the inception of an academic war over how to define the America that existed before the Spanish conquistadors, French explorers, and British adventurers arrived in the New World. And this battle is waged for centuries now by Two factions of scholars, the diffusionist and the independent inventionist. Now, I'll explain what that means as we go along. To this day, the diffusionists are spoken of with derision in maintaining ag mainstream academic circles as they dig into the past with the same courage that characterized Lewis in his journey west. And like Lewis, these rogue scholars continued to unearth evidence that America was visited long before Columbus by explorers crossing both the Pacific and the Atlantic. And these scholars continued to unearth evidence of rich, vibrant, highly evolved cultures that once existed in ancient America. And this glowing volume of archaeological evidence stands in clear contradiction to many key assumptions held by America's founders and their scholarly counterparts, the so-called independent inventionists. Something else to keep in mind. When explorers from the various um, powers began to uh, arrive in heretofore unsettled areas such as uh, North and South America, you have to question how they might be able to step ashore stick a flag in the ground and claim all that land for King Who's-It's or Queen What's-Her-Name. Well, it was based on a papal decision. And the Pope at that time said that if you go to a new area and there's a Christian civilization, it's safe from being colonized. But if it's not a Christian civilization, it's up for grabs. God has so ruled. Now you got to keep in mind that many of the papal decisions 
were convenient for those countries that wanted to uh, expand their borders, so to speak. So basically what the Pope was saying is you get someplace and there's no Roman Catholic religion, it's up for grabs. But if you get someplace and you see Catholic Church, it's safe from uh, being colonized. Now, that was kind of a self-serving decision, but it was said in order to um, give a legal justification to stealing land, which is basically what they were doing. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court said, as we this country moves west, if there is an existing civilization, hands off. But if it's scattered tribes, help yourself. Now, in actuality, many of the areas that were colonized had existing civilizations, but they weren't Catholic. And they weren't militarily strong enough to keep from being colonized. So, basically, the victors go to spoils. Now, the inventionist perspective, even today, remains the standard among archaeologists and suggests the natives of the American continent are descended from Ice Age relatives who crossed the Bering Strait and developed in complete isolation since they were discovered and civilized by the Spanish. Now, number one, <coughs> excuse me, I've had to see any definitive proof the Bering Strait land bridge had that much impact on people's of um, that time period. Now, the Spanish and the French and British, to a certain extent, didn't really come into their own as explorers until the 15th century. In the early days of America, it was the federal government its proponents. They're most interested in uh, characterizing the continent as uh, an un trammeled paradise populated by savages. This set of assumptions gave early explorers and explorers of the American continent the justification they needed to co-op and pillage its resources, wage war on its native people, and occupy its lands with impunity. But let's face it, the Aztecs had a, a going empire until it was destroyed by the Spanish. I mean, destroyed. And was the perspective of the American government officials at the time, as they tamed America's terrain and battled its people for control of the vast stores of resources that would fuel the creation of the new world, and also again, the perspective was later adopted by the Smithsonian Institution, which more than any other organization has 
defined our understanding of America's origins. Since it was created in the 1800s, the Smithsonian joined the powers in Washington in vigorously promoting the idea America was an untouched landscape before Europeans arrived to claim it. Simply put, Smithsonian's initial administrators uh, followed the directions already chosen by America's early uh, forefathers, supported by their own inherited culture and scholarly myopia. The uh, I knew the, the head of a, a museum in the town where I grew up, and he made a mistake of letting me into the basement once upon a time. And there'd been Indian mounds uh, in the area, and I knew that he had been involved in the exploration. And I got an opportunity to look at some of the things he found, and they did not fit in with the theories of the development of the, of the local um, Indian tribes, specifically the Cherokee and some of the others. And that's when I learned that quite often history is not what it really, what really happened, but what the powers that be say happened. And he impressed on that on me very clearly. Just because you find, for example, a Learjet buried in an Indian mound, if we don't report it, it didn't happen. And that way we get to control the development of the history of any given area. And that was, uh, that impressed itself on me. Which may account for how suspicious I am about uh, certain things. And paradoxically enough, it was uh, an agent of the Smithsonian Institution, Matthew Sterling, who championed one of the first... Uh, contentious examples of cultural diffusion when it began investigations into the mysterious Olmecs and the origin of the Mayan culture and what uh, now the southern reaches of Mexico. Now the Olmecs, for those who are not familiar with them, are considered by some historians to be the mother culture of the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Inca tribes. Colombian people, they inhabited the lowlands of south-central Mexico, in a region now occupied by the states of Veracruz and Tabasco. The Olmecs were prominent from 1200 uh, B.C. to about 400 B.C. That's according to various uh, accepted accounts. In the first Mesoamerican civilization and planted seeds of other civilizations throughout the region. And they're credited with being the first Mesoamerican culture to practice ritual blood sacrifice and played the Mesoamerican ball game. Practices that became the hallmarks of a number of uh, subsequent tribes and civilizations. And from the jungles of Mexico's southern Gulf Coast to the modern countries of Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, Costa Rica, and El Salvador, the Omex built settlements established trade routes and developed religious iconography and rituals. But until I was old enough to start doing my own research, I never heard anybody say anything about them. In school, I asked my uh, history teacher about the Olmecs, and I was looked at like I was speaking Russian.
you know, the, the rise of the Olmec civilization was driven largely by the region's ecology, which included uh, well-watered alluvial soil and network of rivers that provided the Olmecs with a ready transportation system. And the region where the Olmec culture took root is similar to other cultural spawning grounds, such as the Nile and the Indus and the other river valleys. Now, the rich environment fostered a, resulted in a dense population and a rise of an elite culture that exploited the region's stores of obsidian and jade, for example, to create works of art that have long defined the Olmec culture. Exploration of this culture was sparked by artifacts circulating through the pre-Columbian art market in the late 19th and early 20th century. In fact, to this day, Olmec artwork is considered among ancient America's most marvelous achievements. Archaeologists consider San Lorenzo the earliest of the major Olmec ceremonial centers. Located in the open country around the Rio Chapito in southern Veracruz, it uh, rested on a massive sculpted salt plateau with a series of man-made ravines constructed on three of its four sides. In fact, this structure represents the earliest ball court in Mesoamerica, complete with a system of carved stone drains. Now, a professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama, by the name of Diaz, conducted uh, archaeological investigations all over Mexico and written what <coughs> excuse me, most considered the uh, essential guide on the Olmecs. And he said San Lorenzo shows clear evidence of class structure. He said there were probably a number of different populations forming groups that rose and fell over time and shifted alliances. I don't think there was any political integration. And while he offered admiration for their drains and class structure, made very little mention of the Olmec's dramatic end, which has been variously explained away by theories of an internal uprising, ecological disaster, or hostile invasion. In fact, when San Lorenzo was discovered, almost all its sculptures were defaced, buried, and destroyed. So somebody went to a great deal of trouble to try to erase the existence of the uh, powers that be. Like Mary Brother Lewis, they all make people at a mysterious end that's yet to be satisfactorily explained. Some of the carved works at San Lorenzo include the legendary massive Olmec head uh, sculptures, which weigh about 40 tons and stand nearly three meters high. These massive heads have puzzled archaeologists since their discovery, showing characteristics led many to assert that they're African in origin or created by people of African descent. When I was in South America, I saw a couple of them, and I would have to agree. The features were most definitely that of uh, someone from an African culture. They were first discovered by plantation workers. These colossal um, sculptures were reported in an 1869 bulletin of the Mexican Geographical and Statistical Society as a magnificent sculpture that almost amazingly represents an Ethiopian. 
The report included a drawing clearly outlining the Stonehead's uh, African features. And what appears to be a bit of honest investigation, uh, investigative reporting was too controversial to be taken seriously at the time. I mean, let's face it, the idea of Africans residing in Mexico was quickly and largely forgotten. With the Smithsonian Institution leading the charge. Decades later, Smithsonian curator Matthew Sterling, fascinated by dusty tomes pulled from the basement of the museum, began a personal exploration into the history of the Olmecs. At that point in time, his findings were considered blasphemous by an academic community dedicated to the study of Mayan culture. Though Sterling's investigations in the late 30s and early 40s, Mayan culture was considered the seed of all culture in Mesoamerica. Olmecs were even mentioned. Archaeologists such as Philip Drucker and Robert Hetzer used modern methods such as carbon dating to determine the age of Olmec artifacts later vindicated Sterling and his views. And though not widely acknowledged, Sterling's discoveries, publications, and perseverance in defending them would undermine a position long held by his own organization. And that's the sad thing. Once a decision is made by the academic powers that be, it would take a war to get it changed. The, uh, the sad thing is everybody thinks they're right. Now, as I've seen, I've got five advanced degrees, and that and 50 cents on a good day to get me a cup of coffee. But I have seen people destroy careers over academic findings, as it were. I, I was in line to do a PhD at UTEP, and I had uh, a summa cum laude in my fifth degree. And I did a paper on the Knights Templar. And I had a lot of very obscure information I picked up over the years, all verifiable. And the woman that was going to be my, uh, I guess you could say mentor in the degree program, was absolutely, totally opposed to some of my findings to the point that she got some other pocket Hitlers together and they decided, since I'm a disabled veteran, to report to the administration that I was a Vietnam veteran trained in combat and prone to violence and I couldn't be allowed on campus. If you can't beat somebody's position, beat the person. Now, where did they get that information? They had friends at the VA. The only problem is, while I was in South America, I didn't set foot in Vietnam. I was infantry. And in their mind, infantry equaled baby killers, as one professor told me. Doesn't make any difference. 
I was not in line and saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, and agreeing with all their theories. So I was evil and had to be stopped. Now, according to Kathy O'Hara, an author of Indigenous Peoples History, outcome of the Olmec Maya controversies noted in the intellectual community as a shining example of the need for open minds. Well, certainly there were no open minds at UTEP. Above all, it shows how major new archaeological discoveries can be made even in the mid-20th century and how the intellectual perseverance of a minority viewpoint in the archaeological community can lead to eventual acceptance, even after initial rejection. Well, in 1938, Sterling traveled to the southwest Mexican lowland armed with well-prepared journals and funds from the National Geographic Society, and his goal was to uncover the mystery of a discarded ancient people. First stop was Tres Zapotes, an ancient Olmec city on the western edge of the Los Tuxlas Mountains. Tres Zapotes is best known for its impressive garden of carved stellas and altars and colossal stone heads, all of which were discovered at least a hundred miles away from the nearest source of stone from which they could be carved. So how did those uh, stones get there? We don't ask questions like that because the powers of be don't have answers. Among the monuments of Trace Sepultures was Stella C, a freestanding stone monument carved from basalt. It's engraved with a undecipherable script that surrounds a jaguar sitting on a throne. Opposite of the Stella is the old, second oldest Mesoamerican long calendar date ever to be recorded. It's a calendar non-repetitive vestigial based on factors of 20 numerical system. Apparently used by several Mesoamerican cultures, most notably the Mayans. Well, Sterling also discovered an imposing 14-foot-high stella with carvings that showed an encounter between two tall men, both dressed in elaborate robes and wearing elegant shoes with turned-up toes. Erosion or deliberate uh, mutilation had defaced one of the figures, but the other was perfectly intact. Obviously depicted a Caucasian male with a high-bridge nose and a long-flowing beard that the archaeologist christened Uncle Sam. And these monuments, whether they resembled bearded Caucasians or African kings, have amazed and bewildered experts and lay people for generations. But I would say, in my experience, elegant shoes with turned-up toes puts somebody in mind of what you would see in the Middle East. Author Graham Hancock He's a, known as an alternative historian, and I've read a lot of his stuff, and he's excellent. He was intrigued by the anomalies associated with the Almecs, and he went to the ruins of uh, La Venta, a civic ceremonial center, home to one of the oldest pyramids in Mesoamerica. And he was dumbfounded at the immense complexity of the structures, according to what he wrote, in the center of the park. Like some magic talisman stood an enormous gray boulder, ten feet tall, carved in the shape of a helmeted African head. This was the first mystery of the Olmecs, a monumental piece of sculpture more than 2,000 years old, unmistakably the head of an African man wearing a close-fitting helmet with a long chin strap. Plugs pierced the lobes of the ears, and the entire face was concentrated above a thick, down-curving lips. 
be impossible for a sculpture to invent all the different combined characteristics of an authentic racial type. The portrayal of an authentic combination of racial characteristics implied strongly a human model been used. It was 22 feet in circumference, weighed 19.8 tons, 8 feet high, carved out of solid basalt, and displayed clearly an authentic combination of racial characteristics. There's no question in his mind this was a accurate image of a real individual. 3,000 years ago, it was created. And the powers that be can't explain it, so they don't talk about it. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be talking more about some of the suppressed history of America. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, so I can have a truly great evening. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.